Welcome to the Geopolitics and Empire podcast. Today we speak with Daniel Fagella, who is the founder and CEO of Emerge. He is a sought-after expert on the competitive strategy implications of AI for business and government leaders and has been called upon by the UN, the World Bank, Interpol, and many global enterprises. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Yeah, glad to be here. So on to my first question, uh, you know, the military technology that was born of the last world war was the nuclear bomb. And now it seems that artificial intelligence is becoming, you know, all the rage. We, we hear about it all the time. And it's the, I guess, the next weapon that will perhaps determine the economic and military supremacy of great powers uh, in the future. So to start us off, can you talk a little bit about the defense and security implications and how might AI change the face of warfare in the near or distant future? Yeah, there's there's a lot to dive into here, um, and actually a good deal. I mean, you'd mentioned the the World Bank and or the the United Nations and Interpol, and a good deal of what our research is focused on is defense and security. Um, certainly, there's a bunch of money going into this space. Um, even a lot of the people in the Bay Area, uh, in San Francisco, and Silicon Valley, formerly aren't aren't necessarily aware that DARPA, sort of our um, you know defense innovation wing here in the states. Uh, was an early funder of just a tremendous amount of early artificial intelligence work. Um, now, relatively speaking, we could say that probably the uh, the bulk of innovation is, is outside of defense, but certainly they're still a big driver. Um, if we talk about big kind of shifts and changes, uh, I'll, I'll tell you sort of broad stroke. And then if you want to poke in a little bit deeper on any specific areas of, of security and defense, we could go in a lot of directions here. Um, there There is on the one side, the uh, the kind of the core heavy equipment AI upgrade game. So we have missile systems, we have self-driving tanks, we have autonomous submarines, we have uh, you know better ways of uh, detecting um, I don't know a- enemy uh, individuals or or ships or what have you with different kinds of technology with AI. Um, that is a a gradual shift. All of the defense contractors, if you look in, especially in the states here, the uh, you know, the Northrop Grumman's or the uh, uh, the other big players in the defense contracting space are working on these kind of um, big, chunky hardware upgrade things. And so sort of this is going to make its way in. But it's going to be many, many, many years um, until the, the new norm is sort of battle cruisers that have all this super neato, you know, autonomous capability or all the missiles that are fireable to be able to have some uh, super cool new AI upgrades on necessarily all of them. Um, I think that's that's coming, but that's a really slow kind of turnover. Uh, the area that I think is a little bit more immediate uh, is in sort of the the security side of things, and and a lot of this has to do with uh, surveillance on one side, um, but also sort of deeper levels of kind of monitoring and, and going on and and understanding the goings on within different uh, countries and organizations. So if you look at where the the United uh, States, for example, is throwing a lot of money, um, computer vision is a massive focus. Being able to use satellite data to get a, a better pulse, a better understanding of what's happening where. The same thing with drones, for example. So kind of drinking in vision data. Sure, sometimes that might inform a missile strike, uh, but other times it's just ensuring that we know what's where, where we stand, what our relative advantages are, who's up to what, and what might be kind of the risks on the radar. So kind of pulsing the security situation, um, so to speak. So I think that all countries will be doing more and more of that. Um, I, I doubt we'll have Terminator bots sort of duking it out on the battlefield anytime soon. Um, the other area that has to do with more of that softer upgrade is sort of what we already saw in the previous election to some degree, um, which is kind of tinkering with these open media systems. So being able to leverage AI to 
uh, kind of undermine security from the perspective of, of social media, of online media channels, um, uh, whether it's sort of uh, sparking outrage in one way, shape, or form, encouraging, encouraging public sentiment in one way, shape, or form, that will be used um, on, quote-unquote, kind of enemy countries, so to speak. Um, certainly the United States is a sitting duck for a lot of that. Um, but also countries that have control over their own internet will be able to use that to mold uh, their own citizenry to potentially be um, able to be more easily marshaled towards the aims of of that uh, uh, whoever's in power or whatever political party is is in power. So so we have kind of this softer upgrade of these digital technologies, kind of creating this better screen, this better lens, this better network of of what's happening in terms of knowing and in terms of um, influencing. Um, and then we have the very slow hardware side. So kind of both of those are happening concurrently. Uh, I'd say that the digital kind of uh, you know, web layer is is a much more immediate uh, concern, I think, for both security and defense than than uh, self driving tanks. And this brings us then to the AI arms race. And from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems that the only real players in the AI game are essentially the United States and China, uh, perhaps then third the EU, and even more so Russia seems uh, far behind. And you have a great article on emerge.com, that's E-M-E-R-J.com, on AI power and the weaknesses of the West, where you conclude that it seems China has the advantage. And your conclusion seems to agree with that of the renowned Chinese-American uh, expert Kai-Fu Li, who wrote AI Superpower. So could you tell us more about the state of the, the competition of the AI arms race and who's got the greater overall advantage? Yeah, and, and it's it's a tough it's a tough ball game, and I, I definitely don't want to come across like the kind of fellow who's framing this as uh, you know as if it necessarily has to be a conflict. It, it really is unfortunate. I don't know how to escape from the state of nature. I don't know how to find the the grand moral alliance in the sky that will make everything friendly. Um, uh, the world, I think, inherently isn't. Um, just you know, in, in terms of my own stance, it's a little bit more of a concern around the CCP. Uh, than it is around, you know, let's say Chinese culture, Chinese people. But for for that reason, given what the CCP can do, uh, I think it's relevant to keep a pulse. So I'll, I'll cover this from two different bases. I'll talk about sort of the the potential technical advantages that that China might be able to wield, and then I'll talk second about the cultural, which for me are, are actually a much bigger point of emphasis. So um, we'll talk technical, see if you have any questions, and then and then we can dive into cultural. I've got a lot more thoughts on this. Um, I spoke for the United Nations in Shanghai. I've been able to interview a lot of uh, great AI researchers and, and entrepreneurs, um, including many who've moved to the United States, uh, but who are still um, uh, formally residents of, of China and citizens of China. Um, so uh, on the technical side, currently, the current state of affairs, again, as, as you'd mentioned, really the U.S. and China are the players. Some people will throw the EU in there. I don't think in 10 years many people are going to be throwing the EU in there. Uh, I, I hope somebody proves me wrong, but I'm just going to, you know, I'll uh, just throw that out. Um, currently, China has less talent and they have less great schools. This is sort of the, the on the technical side where where they have kind of where it is to their detriment. The, the present state of affairs, you just don't have, you know, a Boston or San Francisco per se in China. Beijing is a, a big deal, real deal city, massive population. They're only getting more and more into AI education. But the state of affairs is the real talent is going to be in the Bay Area, in New York, in Boston, uh, you know, and, and elsewhere in the world than, than China right now. So they, they have that as a bit of a downside. Um, but they have a, a much greater ability to wield and follow through on a vision for AI. So Xi Jinping is, is obviously quite 
convinced that artificial intelligence is an important thing for China. Um, unless the mandate of heaven f- falls apart, um, Xi Jinping will, will sit there until he's dead, um, as, as many an emperor has, uh, and, and will be able to potentially carry forward with that vision in a much more uh, kind of fluent and cohesive way than whoever comes after Trump. Um, many of us are hoping that, that you know, Trump won't be uh, you know, in, the, in that chair for all that much longer, um, but whoever's after him, who knows what direction they're going to go with with AI. So, so China has this ability top-down to really marshal enthusiasm, to really activate the academic world. Um, China has a much more like, di- direct, direct ability to steer the universities. You know, there's universities that teach Xi Jinping thought. Um, I, I assure you, my brother, I live in the United States. I live in Boston, which is the academic city of my country. Um, th- there is no Donald Trump thought taught at universities. Uh, I'm, hopefully the audience will be grateful to hear that. So um, the, the ability to wield and follow through on a vision, uh, also the ability to, um, to kind of drink in whatever it is that the West develops. So the United States is rather open. I think I think the sentiment is pretty good here to be able to share things as much as possible, as many academic innovations, you know, even in, within companies, within Facebook or these other uh, Microsoft, anywhere with a huge AI lab. These are people that are excited to be published, right? They, they're, they're not Wall Street traders who just want to make a lot of money, although, uh, trust me, many of them are making tremendous sums of money. Um, they also want to be published. They want to be pushing the science forward and be known for that and to share that. And so the priority is, is actually to, to do exactly that. And so China is able to kind of drink a lot of that in. Um, the same uh, sort of yearning to share with the rest of the world I don't think is the case in China. And even if it was, they're smart enough to be able to drink in a lot of English. Um, but in the West, we're, we're not, I, I think, maybe as smart or maybe just don't have the technology or enough people that speak it to be able to drink in, um, uh, you know, Mandarin. Um, so, you know, there's just not not the same degree of, of kind of cross-pollination. So I think they win that game uh, as well. And I think lastly, you know, when we talk about um, Xi Jinping being able to really wield academia, really wield the private sector, really bend things sort of to a coherent sense of vision, which may be guided by him 10 years from now, 15 years from now, who knows? Um, part of that also has to do with, with propaganda and surveillance tech. They are really winning the game when it comes to, now I'm not saying it's a game everybody wants to win. I'm not saying I would want to win the game, but I'm just saying it's a thing. Um, they're, they're really winning the computer vision game, you know, facial recognition, um, surveillance writ large, uh, sort of the monitoring of people and of communications. They're, they're really clamping down the Confucian culture there, which we'll get into in a bit, um, kind of allows for that to, to a greater degree. Um, and I think that that's going to lead to, uh, not only the ability to surveil, but, but to, uh, promote propaganda, to be able to really wield the, uh, the beliefs of the people to really move people in directions that are coherent and conducive to the power uh, of, of the CCP. So I think technically China has some weaknesses, but they do have a lot of good openings and great opportunities from a purely power perspective. And so you've also written about the trend of China rising as a superpower and the U.S. empire declining. And I would agree with you as well. It's just like uh, we're talking about these things. It's it's not whether we like it or not. It's just that that's how things are. That's the reality. Um, and you've written you've written that the empire or kingdom of the future will be based on the creation and wielding of AI, which is interesting. And you've also said that conflict isn't inevitable, but uh, likely. So. You know, how do you see these trends playing out between the two superpowers and beyond the current uh, trade war skirmish, if I might call it that, you know, what might uh, uh, conflict look like? 
you know, in the near term, um, so there's the, the, the book that is now, I think, kind of beaten to death, but I, I think it deserves, uh, you know, rightful acknowledgement as a dynamic, the, the Thucydides trap here of the, you know, potentially China in the, the decade ahead, um, sort of becoming the dominant uh, sort of individual nation economically, militarily, technologically um, on the planet. And just the fact that that baton is being passed, being a potential cause for friction, a potential reason for the states to to maybe find reasons whether they're good or bad to to jump into conflict, etc. So we have that general we have that general dynamic at play. So in the near term, I imagine it could it could hypothetically have to do with a great many things. I mean, I'll throw out one potential hypothesis, which I I hope isn't the case. I I hope none of these conflict scenarios are the case. So near term and long term, and I know you and I are going to get into the long term today. Um, near term, I I think that. There is the potential that um, uh, sort of China's uh, sort of surveillance way of doing things, China's monitoring, China's kind of pretty pretty well clamped down control uh, that they they enjoy the, that the CCP enjoys over the the citizenry now um, kind of extends to to greater parts of their wake, and I think they're doing a very good job of keeping that below the point when it would be conducive to conflict right now. So, for example, you know, we could talk about what they do with the ports, right, where they'll they'll set up a port and they'll set up some financing and they'll negotiate something that we could argue whether it's the case or not. Let's just say it, it likely is. I don't know for sure. I'm not not here to necessarily claim certainty, but that they'll they'll set up a port somewhere where they know that ultimately the, the company will have or the country will have to default on that port. And then they'll be able to use it as a military base in some strategic location, whether it be in Africa or elsewhere in, in the uh, kind of Asian seas somewhere um, where, where they can then kind of garner uh, another base for their own operation. So um, when that sort of becomes – so right now I think the reason that that is done in the way that it is, in, in other words, it's, it's kind of – it's like financial wielding of power. They're like building their, mind, their, their military might by these very sort of indirect means, these kind of gradual non-conflictory means. I think one of the reasons that that's the case today is because they know that if it went – you know, if things went all out tomorrow, they're not going to win that, that fight um, tomorrow. Um, but I think that when people and, – and someone might um, – level this charge against the United States, when a country gets to a level where it knows it would win, it might throw its weight around in a much more overt sense. And I think that that as China knows, relatively speaking, where it stands, and, and it stands pretty good, you know, let's say five years from now, 10 years from now, um, it, it's possible that it's inchings out for control, uh, that it's, it's inchings out of the boundary of who it monitors, how it monitors, who it controls, how it controls, become, become more overt in nature, and that somewhere, be it you know, on the, the edge of India, be it somewhere in the, the South China Sea, be, be it elsewhere in the world, um, somewhere that will become more brazen to the point where it will garner conflict. So that China's very uh, kind of kind of shy approach to eking out their power structures now might become, again, a little bit more brazen and, and somewhere that, that would cause conflict. That's near-term stuff. Um, I think in the longer term, ultimately, there will be a, a pretty big question about um, uh, the creation of, of strong AI, the creation of, of vastly more expansive and powerful artificial intelligence, um, and, and also potentially neurotechnologies, things that kind of extend and augment um, human minds. And I think that uh, there will be conflicts within and between countries about which of those paths that we should take. I think the big game, the game where it seems like 
I don't know how we get out of there without conflict, is actually that latter one. So it is possible um, that as sort of power ekes its way out and, and the uses of these technologies get brazen, there's conflict. But I think long ball, it's as we start to tinker with the human experience and with the real raw kind of superpower of AI, maybe that's two decades out, uh, three decades out, when, when things I think get spooky and, and it seems just, uh, from my perspective, near impossible to kind of avo- avoid avoid conflict. And so speaking about conflict, uh, whether it's uh, and the danger of the uh, conflict between U.S. and China or whether it's the danger of AI uh, itself, you know, something you've written about is globism, which is the idea to build a world state with a world language, global media, global culture and so on. You write that a global governance structure would be necessary, I suppose, to, to mitigate these dangers. So can you tell us uh, about this and where we are? Where do you see us today in the move? toward a global governance? Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you now, um, you know, from, uh, we were, I was at headquarters at the United Nations earlier this year presenting basically deep fakes. We actually took one of the directors at the UN and we deep faked them to say and uh, say a bunch of things they never said basically and kind of use it as a bit of a demo and teed it off as a topic. Um, when it comes to sort of the security concerns of AI now within these bigger international bodies, um, from my experience, um, from headquarters and elsewhere, uh, we can talk about the UN. I mean, I could talk about Interpol and the World Bank as well, but um, the UN, I think, is the most relevant body in this regard, could hypothetically be a good conduit to this kind of um, this kind of work. Uh, really, the concerns today are very much not about what we are just talking about, which is, hey, this will pose such a radical shift to the human condition, such a radical shift to how we communicate, how we live, uh, how how existence as a human being actually plays out, that we were really going to have to monitor how this stuff shakes out, um, or even the grand destructive power of it. If we want to talk about autonomous weapons or, or much farther implications, really right now, um, a, a big bulk of the, the conversations are, are more so around how can we marshal more of these technologies to potentially, you know, prevent, um, you know, terrorism or other kinds of conflict, you know, whether it's financial crime for funding terrorism or, or whatever, or just around the privacy security stuff. So, hey, AI is coming. We really need to make sure it doesn't infringe too much on human rights. We really need to make sure it's very inclusive in terms of um, genders and cultures and things like that. Um, today, the UN is is really enamored with those ideas, like absolutely enthralled with them. Um, and I think less, less so even considering uh, the, the, the long ball sort of governance of the creation of, you know, strong AI uh, of, of kind of neurotechnology and, and the real future of the human experience. I think that, um, they're, they're not there yet. There are, there are some folks, um, the name of the organization wholly evades me at the moment. Uh, but the, the fellow who heads it up is Wendell Wallach, who's a, a buddy of mine who I've known now for half a decade, um, who's working on sort of uh, brainstorming, developing, bringing together different expert groups around what would international governance of, of these technologies look like. Um, but from from my perspective, the current traction is rather low. It's really brainstorm mode. And when it comes to the UN, this stuff is not um, not really on the radar in a big way. It's much more uh, privacy, security, kind of human rights, inclusiveness. That's that's what the UN cares about as of today, or seems to. I can't speak for them. I, I won't speak for them. But if I give you my experience, that's what it is. And so to go a little bit deeper, a little bit uh, more esoteric, if you will, you know, some experts believe that AI capabilities will become great and uh, develop very soon, while others believe that it will take a, a long time and that there is a limit to how far 
AI can go, especially in terms of super intelligence and cosmism, the, this idea of humanity building artificial uh, artilects or godlike massively intelligent machines that will become uh, a new and dominant species. So what are your thoughts on the potential of, of AI? How far uh, can it go as well as uh, the limits? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, well, I'm, I'm glad that your audience is into this stuff, by the way, I very rarely get to speak about this in you know, uh, defense or sort of international governance conversations. But ultimately, I think these are the big questions. Um, you know, when we talk about sort of what is it all about? So um, we've actually done a lot of polling here at Emerge, uh, we have access to a, a lot of PhDs, we've done Lord knows how many, probably 1000s of interviews at this point. And so we'll occasionally zip out a poll to, you know, 30 or 40 AI PhDs and get a sense of, you know, by when do you suspect that the singularity might occur where machine intelligence would surpass humans and continue to improve kind of exponentially? By when do you suspect we might have machine consciousness? And so we've done a number of these different polls. And there's, there's a lot of folks, as you had said, um, who have PhDs from very good schools who believe that hundreds of years from now, it's extremely unlikely that we're going to have anything more intelligent than people in a general sense. Um, we also have many, many experts, dozens uh, from very good schools with PhDs in, in AI or, or uh, you know, related fields um, who are of the belief that you know, in the next 30 years, it wouldn't be tremendously surprising if we had post-human intelligence. And so for me, as a guy who doesn't have that kind of schooling, and I have to respect that I, I, didn't, I didn't go to school for that. I have a master's in cognitive science. It's not the same as, you know, a PhD AI from Carnegie Mellon. Um, uh, I, I sort of have to play the middle ground here. I do not at, in any way, shape, or form write off the big game concerns of post-human uh, trajectory. And I think that if we can survive for long enough, it seems pretty likely that something of that sort will occur. Um, you know, the confluence that we see when we poll people, and this is very anecdotal, is maybe in the 2060 range. Now, if you come back to me in 2060 and I poll those same people again, uh, maybe they'll say it's the year, you know, 2100 or something. You know, maybe it always moves back by the same increments. But if we just talk to experts now, you know, there seems to be a little bit of a hump in terms of, of uh, time horizon guesstimates in that in that 2060 range. So for, for me, I think as humanity, it's paramount that we consider what is this all about? What are what are futures that we would consider preferable? Some of those preferable or non preferable, and some of those have to be creating something grander than we um, some people would see tremendous meaning and value in being able to do that. Other people would believe that there's nothing more sacrilegious and there's nothing worse. And I think that this is where we get into the big conflict stuff. Uh, there, there, I think, will be a, a grand conflict between the people who think we need to upgrade our brains, build superintelligent AI, and people who can't imagine anything worse than taking humans off the top of the totem pole. Um, all kinds of great writers have written about this stuff, but yeah, I, I see those conflicts as extremely real. And if I was gonna, if if you, if I was a betting man, you were gonna ask me to throw down money here, I would say I will likely see a good deal of that within my lifetime. I'm betting that I will see a good deal of that conflict between should we, should we not, um, within within my lifetime. So I'm I'm uh, I'm not gonna say I'm pro cosmist, but I'm gonna say we should not write off those concerns. That's my take. Yeah, I can't remember the title of that film with, I think it's Ethan Hawke, uh, which has to do, I, I think, somewhere in the future where a lot of uh, humans are augmented somehow and he's just normal human and he has to kind of try to fit in. And, and um, Was it like Galactica or something like that? Something like this. But you know, yeah, yeah. just to go a step further, you, you talked about 
the singularity, uh, you know, transhumanism on your website, you talk about um, the transhuman and posthuman uh, transition, as well as the uploading of consciousness, I guess, through technology and upload, you know, uploading it to a computer. Could you just comment, you know, so, so if, if this cosmism came about, you know, what would it look like? I mean, it's it's pretty far out. And you yeah. said it could be 2060, you know, who knows? When. Who knows? Yeah. What, what might this kind of look like? Yeah. So I'll give you some hypotheses. Um, I actually was interviewing folks in this space, this admittedly far out space, well before we got into the practical aspects of AI and pharma, AI and defense, AI and security. Um, uh, and, and back then, seven, eight years ago, almost nobody cared about this stuff. Um, but, uh, but yeah, to, to paint a bit of a picture, I, I think that the hypothesis here is that we will see enough progress in terms of artificial intelligence, and we'll potentially begin to see some progress with um, extending human cognition with neurotechnology to, to the point where the idea will open up. And this idea is wide open to a very small group of human beings today. But the idea will open up that um, ultimately, in order to sort of expand whatever we think is good. So, so define good. Good might be, oh, understanding what is going on in nature and what's happening in this big, crazy universe that we don't understand. Okay, maybe that's the good. Um, maybe the good is expanding bliss, conscious, self-aware uh, life, sort of experiencing ranges of gargantuanly positive emotion. Maybe, maybe that's the good. Whatever the good is, um, it, it will come to dawn on, on a great many people that if we can expand consciousness and intelligence vastly, then we can really magnify the good, kind of like a, a much broader laser beam that could potentially populate, you know, our, our, our galaxy here uh, with, with, you know, AI that could represent whatever that good is. Um, and so I think that this might supplant the same need that we have uh, for religion. And I'm not in any way downgrading cosmism. I'm, I'm not insulting cosmism by saying this. I'm saying that as, as human beings, I think meaning is rather important to us. Um, and I think that for folks who have a tough time looking at all the religious books and figuring out which one of them is real, um, I, I think that there will be some appeal to, even if there is no book that can tell us all the answers, maybe there's at least a path where we could kind of figure out. So I think that our, our highest, loftiest aspirations for, for many people sort of born, let's say today, 2020, 2019. Um, you know, the, the highest moral aspirations, the highest longings for meaning might lend themselves better to the expanse of technology, which is a little bit more tangible than a after death reincarnation scenario that gets talked about in this book, or some walking on the clouds with grandma again, conversation that they talk about in this other book. Um, it, I, I think we might hang our hat, hang our hat of hope, hang our hat of meaning, on something that might be a little bit more tangible, because I think at some point there will be so much progress on AI and neurotech that it'll be hard not to hang our hat there. Many people will continue with their traditional religious beliefs, but I think cosmism will take off when everything we conceive of as good, everything we can conceive of as meaning, um, we can latch onto the expanse of that which can conjure it itself, intelligence, consciousness itself. Um, and as we start to marshal that and wield that, and to some degree, master some of that in the coming, let's say, two, three, four decades, maybe it's centuries, right? But I'm, I'm giving you maybe four decades. Um, I think more and more people will have those ideas. And so I see cosmism as uh, at that point, right? Today, it's very much, oh, you know, science fiction weirdos or whatever. Uh, but I think at that point, um, when, when it, it becomes so evident for many people, I think it'll be hard for it not to be a uh, quite a grand movement, quite, quite, a, quite a popular movement.
So this brings me to, I guess, one of my final questions that uh, I think brings everything kind of together uh, with everything that you've said previously. Um, you've written that all competition between the world's most powerful nations or organizations, whether economic competition, political or military, is about gaining control over the computational substrate that houses human experience and artificial intelligence. So again, for me, you know, I guess that refers to everything from laptops, smartphones, video games, VR, AR, internet, and 5G, smart homes, smart cities, IoT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of this, which is, um, so, you know, can you describe this prize that everyone is, is seeking? It's, it's, I, it's an interesting term, computational substrate that houses human uh, experience. Yeah, I call this the, the substrate monopoly kind of dynamic. And, and by the way, um, I could be wholly wrong about this hypothesis. It's, it's really a hypothesis that I have um, that companies like Microsoft, companies like Baidu, and certain people, certain savvy folks in the leadership of the CCP and the leadership of the United States are well aware that this is the game. Um, that, and and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of frame for you what the game is. So um, over the course of the next, so if you look at the last 20 years and you look at sort of total amounts of screen time, like really immersive, engaged screen time, you obviously some, see some kind of uh, ungodly level of catastrophic increase um, in terms of how how much we live in digital systems. I mean, it's, it's you know, uh, kids who were born 10 years ago, I think the digital world is the physical world. They're, they're not different. It's like your your personality on Facebook or whatever is is as important or let's say maybe five times more important than your wardrobe, right? Than your car, than your whatever. The, these, these digital worlds are what we do. You know, for me, my previous company was actually a remote company. Right now here at Emerge, we, we have plenty of folks that work around the world. And, um, you know, uh, the way that we make our money is in these, these, these worlds of people writing code, like people, you know, making phone calls or doing Skype calls and looking, looking people in the face who are on the other side of the world and asking them questions. Um, so we, we work in these worlds, we play in these worlds, we, we are entertained in these worlds, our personalities are in these worlds. Now, if you take that dynamic and you stretch it 20 years forward, I, I think you get to sort of you know, what it's about, where, where things are going, where, where I, you know, I, I say frequently we're going in, in other words, um, at some point, virtual reality, augmented reality will be uh, kind of borderline ubiquitous, just like, you know, smartphones and laptops and whatnot are borderline u ubiquitous today. Eventually AR VR will be borderline ubiquitous. And I think there will come a time, and this could be 20 years out when really, really immersive, customized, personalized, virtual environments will be way more productive. In other words, if you want to make sales calls and you want to interact and like make sales, you'll be able to re reply to a tremendous number of messages, make a number of kind of uh, concurrent calls at the same time, maybe have a clone of yourself who can handle sales calls up to a certain point. And by, by existing in these sort of more immersive tools, you'll be able to make astronomically more, more money and have better career prospects. And this, the opposite will also be true. If you completely neglect these technologies, you'll have a hard time getting a job. Imagine if I told you right now, I don't know how to use a laptop and I also don't have a, a cell phone. You would say, well, your career options are very limited right now. Now, in 20 years, if anybody thinks that Microsoft Word and using a cell phone are going to be like the barometers of are you modern, you know, do you know how to use WordPress or something? Are these going to be the barometers of, of do you have a modern skill set? That's obviously ridiculous. It's going to be whatever the next paradigm is. So immersion will not only be better entertainment, 
um, better ways to connect with friends or, or around the world or, or what have you, uh, better for that kind of relational uh, sense if, if folks aren't close to you. Um, but it'll be better pragmatically from, from, uh, in terms of being able to get things done to, to actually achieve your ends in the world. So it will not be, uh, purely sort of drinking in and entertainment. It will be how you are, how you be, how you do in the world. Um, when we, when that is the case, so when, when to do what you want to do to achieve your aims in the world, you, you really have to be going in. Um, when that is the case, adoption will be astronomic. And the supposition here is that whoever owns that virtual ecosystem, wherever we're walking around, whoever's monitoring the communication, whoever kind of controls potentially what's in front of us, whoever controls whatever recommendation engine produces the music playing in the background, um, whatever communications channels connect us to our friends, whoever controls that digital ecosystem will at that point, in the form of servers, will kind of control the world. Because what is the world? It's, it's what we perceive. We could say that the internet isn't real, but if I shut it down tomorrow, I guarantee you the impacts would be real. Um, and so uh, as we go in and as pragmatic, um, goal-oriented drives bring us in, not just entertainment, if in order to do what we want to do in the world, we have to go in. Um, whoever owns that world, whoever produces whatever's being conjured in front of our eyes and into our ears, whoever's making all of that, that's really unprecedented power. Um, to, to be able to sort of control that, uh, because that, that'll kind of be controlling the, the actual experience of that many humans. The ability to subtly encourage people to do what you'd like would be astronomic. The ability to surveil would be unparalleled. You'd basically be mind reading levels of surveillance. Um, and so that level of power would be, would be grandiose. And, and ultimately, uh, it would be the unlocking of any and all future vistas of sort of economic explosion and certainly of, of control. Uh, and of power. So the hypothesis is that the CCP and, and some folks in the U.S. government are aware of this. In my opinion, the, the highest leadership in, in the Facebooks and Baidus of the world are, and Googles of the world are undeniably aware of this, and that ultimately the economic and military winning of the world happens through who owns that. Um, let me know if that makes sense. Oh, of course, yeah. And I guess how one question might be, I guess it could be an obvious question is, you know, if we ever got to that point, we if we reach that apex I mean, wouldn't there be a danger if, you know, one entity or, or, you know, group or whether it's private or whether it's government got control of a large portion of the global um, ecosystem? And if they weren't, you know, a, a nice group, you know, if it went like totalitarian or, or, or dystopian, I mean, is that is that a scenario? Uh, is You mean, is there a scenario where a group takes control of that world and, and begins to influence in certain ways? Or, or what, are, what are you wondering about in terms of the specifics of that situation? No, like as, as you said, that um, if, um, you know, a certain group gains a monopoly on, on this virtual uh, digital ecosystem, um, but, you know, maybe they're like the current CCP who have this social credit score and, uh, you know, can it go towards uh, a dystopia or I guess the fail safe would be what you were talking about earlier, creating some type of governance structure to kind of uh, go more towards a democratic uh, governance. So it could go both ways, no? I 100 percent think it could go both ways. Um, and I think that the, the continued strength of the West broadly will be kind of fighting on the side of hey, some semblance of privacy, even in this immersion, should be necessary. Hey, uh, you know, the ability to thought police folks beyond this level should not be permitted. I, I think that kind of the, the torch of, of 
of human rights in some regard um, will be upheld by, you know, systems that in general permit for more of that. Right now, I can tweet whatever I want about my current president, um, and you know, no one's going to come to my house and break my legs. You know what I mean? Um, and in an immersive world, obviously the, the the punishments could be very immediate. The tracking could be, you know, very easily down to a person. And yeah, I think that as as this as we go in, so to speak. Um, who will run that show and what will that ultimately mean? I think China has an advantage here that they already have a citizenry um, who, who is sort of, you know, in, in, in a great many ways, kind of used to this. They are used to this level of control, not only from kind of Confucian values, which, which by the way, are not necessarily bad at all. They're just awesome if you're a tyrant. Like they're the best values in the world if you're a tyrant. Um, like I, 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 Xi Jinping is in just the greatest position in the world. I mean, you, you just you don't want like Pericles as your intellectual hero if you want to be a tyrant. You you really do want kind of Confucian values, um, which again were never intended to be bad at all and, and have many great lessons in them. But uh, there's a little bit more pliability there, and I think the the opportunity for China would be if they could if they could wield ultimate control over their digital space, which they're going to do way faster than the United States, way faster. If they can wield that control in a way that that in some way gets people to, to kind of prefer it. You know, maybe they can, they can infer the benefits in some way and they can wield that propaganda to be able to convince folks that maybe that's good and they can find a way to expand that. Um, they, they might be in a position to kind of influence that, that global dynamic of as we all start to go in, sort of who controls what and how much. I think, I think the CCP has a, an opportunity from a pure power and control perspective to sort of really get the head start on running the the substrate monopoly on their own citizenry and potentially being able to expand that, get experience in that, wield influence in that. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, the, the world that wants to operate on a different set of values should really be considering how are we going to pull that off? And and will China have a great advantage by being able to propagandize the benefits of of the, you know, the totalitarian side of the game, which I think would definitely behoove the party in power. So these are these are concerns for the future, but I, I think we should be talking about them now. Is there any final thought you'd like to leave us with or any point uh, that I didn't bring up that you'd like to mention? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, you know, for the folks who are tuned in, I imagine you have people all around the world. Um, I'll, I'll bring this up specifically for the sake of, of the, the states, but, but maybe just the West in general. Um, I'll leave on this note, I guess, in terms of final point that really ties into what a lot of what you're talking about. I think that a lot of the conversations around AI ethics in the West, and, and rightfully so, are really well anchored in privacy and security, in human rights and in inclusion, that these are really preeminent um, drums that are being beaten in the AI ethics conversations in the West. And I think that that is by all means a good thing. And, and we, we have reason to be proud of it and, and to uphold it. Um, I think that one consideration, one very important ingredient that should be added into the milieu, into the mix of the AI ethics conversation in the West is the idea that the West's relative strength is what actually permits those values to be upheld. So if we want to talk AI ethics, we also have to talk about our relative technological predominance, our relative economic power, our relative strength in the international world, because freedom of speech does not um, exist in thin air. Freedom of speech exists because countries are strong enough to uphold it. And so I think the, the West needs to consider that AI ethics needs to consider the strengths of their damn nations. Um, and, and I wish uh, that that was part of the conversation today, and it is very much not. Um, and so I will leave us with that. 
All right. And how can people uh, best follow you uh, and your work online? Yeah. Um, so our market research firm, uh, Emerge, you, you'd mentioned our work with the UN and other folks. Most of our work is actually in the private sector, working with um, whether it's financial institutions or artificial intelligence vendors. That's just emerj.com. If you're interested in where AI is impacting industry, you can reach us there. But otherwise, I'm just on Twitter at Dan Fagella. Feel free to pop me a note. Say hi. Let me know you listen to the podcast. All right. I, I encourage listeners to go check out uh, the website. I honestly just discovered it like a few weeks ago. I subscribed and followed you on Twitter. And there's a lot of resources there. Uh, very interesting. And thank you again for the interview, Daniel. Of course, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.